All right, I'm on. Ooh, I am on. Surprise, surprise. Hope everyone's doing well tonight. Really loud. Um, let's get started with uh, prayer requests. Uh, Stacy said we need to pray for Kelly, who's having some back pains. Kelly Davis. I saw Cindy Blanks today. She was in good spirits, ready to come home, but not yet able to. They're waiting on her oxygen level to rise. But she's doing well. He, uh, grandson in the Marines, leaving the 13th of January. Is that for basic training or deployment? Basic training. Basic training. Uh, has anyone heard from Helen Bowes today? I have not. Is Okay. So she didn't look like she felt good last night. I haven't heard. You said Lewis Harris? Lewis Harris was taken to the hospital, but unknown on the details. Donnie's brother, Gerald, is recovering from bypass surgery. What? Yes. Jean. What's her last name? Jean Duncan is having surgery this coming Wednesday. A week from today, right? Uh, Duke, Maine, I believe. Duke, Maine. I got a uh, first cousin, Robin Brooks. She uh, says in there, and uh, she's in Richmond, Virginia. She fell from the bed, I think. Mm. Johnny's cousin Robin fell and broke her leg, and she has MS, so she's recovering from that, but difficult, no doubt. Yes, ma'am. Duke Regional, Duke Raleigh, Duke Raleigh, yeah. Helen is having neck surgery. 
on the 21st, 21st of this month. Anyone else? All right. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for being steadfast. Thank you for holding steady when our lives are not steady. Lord, as we've come through the holiday season and now move back into our routines and our normal schedule, Lord, I pray that we would uh, do that well. That we would see all of life as worship. As we readjust to our day-in, day-out schedule, that we would uh, not be overwhelmed in the mundane, but that we might see uh, each and every day as an opportunity to know you and to commune with you and to love you and to grow to know you and love you more. Lord, as we have made note of these men and women who are in need of our prayers, we are reminded that we live in a world that's broken by sin. We are reminded that our bodies don't last forever. We are reminded that bad things happen. Lord, we, we don't always expect these, and they often interrupt our, our day-to-day. But God, we know that they don't surprise you. They don't somehow get in your way. So God, I pray for those who are sick and suffering with various things, that you would sustain them in that time. That you would bind them up and be gracious to them. Lord, we pray for healing, where healing is possible. We pray, that God, that you would bring swift healing and comfort. But more than that, God, we know that the physical healing of our bodies is not our ultimate hope. And so I pray, God, that you would heal their hearts and their souls. That you would remind them that you are near. That you would cause your word to dwell in them richly. That you would set their minds on the things above where Christ is. That you would set their hope on the resurrection. That you would remind them that though their outer self is wasting away, their inner self is being renewed day by day because Jesus, you are the fullness of the Godhead and you are continuously filling us up. God, I pray that we would learn to be still and quit our fighting against these things and quit fighting to act like we can control these things and Remember that you are, in fact, God. Teach us, O Lord, to be a faithful people of prayer. That it's right to come to you when people are sick. It's right to come to you for surgery. It's right to come to you for worry. It's right to come to you when we have anxiety. It's right to come to you when we need wisdom. There's never a time when we should not come to you. So God, teach us to be faithful in prayer. Help us, Lord, as we saw just a few weeks ago here in Matthew, that... Prayer is more for us. It's more to orient us to who you are. It's more to orient us and remind us that you are the God who is in total control. That you are the God who knows all things. That you are the God who promises that all things work together for good for your people. You are the God who sustains us in the midst of hardship. And it's right for us to pray. God, as we open your word, I pray that you would join us in that. And Holy Spirit, you would... Help us to see wondrous things that would cause us to love you and to be obedient to you and to be submissive to you and to walk away with hearts filled with joy. 
God, I pray these things in faith and in your name. Amen. All right, uh, Matthew 6 is where we'll be tonight. And if you've been here, uh, Matthew 6 is about practical Christianity. What does it look like to be a Christian? What does it look like to live it out? And the first three we looked at were giving to the poor, praying, and fasting. And those are kind of outward things. Christianity lived on the outside. And Jesus says, beware of just pretending to be righteous outwardly. Just beware of just pretending to be religious, of pretending to be a Christian. If if your Christianity only goes as deep as what you do, then he says, beware, because that's not true Christianity. It's not what it really means to follow him. On the contrary, he says, our outward actions come forth from who we are inwardly. What's true of our hearts comes out. And so that's what he's going to focus on now. We talked about, we're going to talk about practical Christianity. That is the, the interior of who we are before Christ. And so in Matthew chapter 6, we'll pick up in verse 19. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be or if your eye is healthy, your body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So, in uh, the preceding section of this sermon, like I said, Jesus indicates that the outward religious life of his disciples, this is the kind of thing you'll experience as you live out Christianity. When you give to the poor, you will be tempted to give so that other people know what you're giving. You may not tell them how much money you give, but it's tempting to let people know, hey, I gave something. Or it's tempting to let people to, to want people to see and be aware I have done something religious. I think if we're honest, we'd like to be recognized for those kinds of things. And Jesus says, beware of that. And he says, with prayer, don't pray just so other folks will hear you. Don't pray and use all these big words to make people think you are religious. Because that's what hypocrites do. That's what the Pharisees do. And Pharisees, if you know anything about that time, were, they were the religious experts. They were the, they were the pastors of that time. And Jesus says they're acting very religious. They're praying these big lofty prayers, and they're even going out to where crowds are gathered and praying out there just so that they'll be heard. Don't be like that. Pray in secret. And he says when you fast, don't let other folks know. It's tempting to say again, uh, hey, I'm fasting today. Just thought you might like to know. I'm very holy. You know, Jesus says, don't, don't be like that. Because then your fast will only be serving you. Your fast won't be an honest offering to the Lord. And so chapter 6 verse 1 brings clarity on how the righteousness granted to us through Christ is to be exercised. That that's true through Christ 
through the gospel, we are granted the full righteousness of Christ. Uh, Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where he says, He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. And so we are granted full and complete righteousness. All that is in Jesus. We are granted that. And Jesus is explaining, how do you use that? It's not for show. It's not so people think you're righteous. It's to be used in the inner self. It's to be just to transform our inner self. And so righteousness should produce growth in our lives. It's almost like Matthew and Mark were talking to each other as they wrote their Gospels. Because if you remember the parable of the soils from Sunday, he said the, so, the seed that fell on good soil did what? It produced, right? It produced fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. And so righteousness, true righteousness, should produce or does produce growth in Christ's likeness. And so in the present section of the sermon... Jesus turns from the public realm of Christianity to the inner nature of our lives. Giving to the needy, praying, and fasting, those are all things that we, actions that we do. Now Jesus is going to talk again about who we are. Now it's not the first time he's done this. If you remember in chapter 5, he went through all the things, anger, lust, uh, divorce, oath, retaliation, all those things. Those are, those are things that proceed forth from our inner selves. And Jesus says, you know, don't, don't think you haven't uh, done something just because you're outwardly innocent of it. Because it all comes forth from the heart. So just as you may have never murdered someone physically, Jesus says, you've heard that said, but I tell you, if you've hated in your heart, it's as if you've already gone after that person and ended their life. And so rightly so, the disciples say, well, who can handle this? Who can handle this sort of teaching? And the point is that we, that's where we should arrive. Jesus' point is, all these religious folks think that they've got this in the bag, that they're behaving their way unto Christianity. They're, they're, they are so religious that God is just going to let them into heaven. And Jesus' point is that apart from Him, apart from His salvation, apart from the total renewal that the gospel brings, we can't bear this teaching. And so in this present section, he's dealing with our interior life of our heart and our minds, and he's warning us against the everyday concerns of wealth and worry, which, as he'll show, can rob us of kingdom priorities. Now, you may, you may know well the passage that comes right after this, where Jesus says, don't worry. Look at the birds, look at the grass, look at the creation. It's all cared for, and you're more valuable than that. So don't, don't worry. And what we'd like him to say is, instead of worrying... Here's seven steps on how not to worry. But he says, instead of worrying, seek the kingdom. And sometimes we're like, that doesn't feel great. I don't know how to do that. I don't see how that's the opposite of worrying. Not worrying, according to Jesus, is seeking first the kingdom and leaving those things to him. Well, he's going to explain that. But one of the ways he's going to get at it is by saying, if we are so consumed with things like worry, with things like anxiety over money and provisions, if, if, if those things are consuming us, it will distract us from the kingdom. So much so that his statement, instead of worrying, seek the kingdom, that doesn't make sense. If we're so distracted on money and provisions and the worldly stuff, if that's what's occupying our minds, then the stuff of the kingdom will seem foreign. 
like you're speaking a different language. Which again, if you've been here on Sundays, we see that with Jesus and the Pharisees, with Jesus and the crowds. He's saying this stuff clearly. And that's the point of the parable with the soils. Jesus says, I'm not speaking a different language. I'm not saying different things to different people. You're hearing it differently. And so what comes out as life to believers comes out as nonsense to non-Christians. And Jesus saying it's, it's because of who we are inside. He's also teaching us how to properly live with the priority of the kingdom and its righteousness. And this includes our ideals, the vision that we have for our lives, what we prioritize, and our own security. We can so easily seek security in the world. And Jesus says, don't be foolish and think there is security to be had in the world. There's no ultimate security in jobs. There's no ultimate security in money. There's no ultimate security in health or healthy living. And Jesus says, don't, don't make the mistake of doing that because by doing that, you'll be distracted from what's ultimate. So the first one is this. Choose your master, God or money. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. If you remember back to chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And he's, he's challenging us with concerns. He's challenging our normal concerns. He's calling attention to the obstacles that keep us from those things. And many of these things arise daily. Many of things are just daily things in our lives that will detract uh, or detract from our focus on the kingdom or derail us entirely. If we are not faithfully committing ourselves to Christ, if we're not following Him, if we are not being faithful students of His Word, then the smallest things can derail us. And then we worry, and we wonder, why do I worry? We live a life not focused on the kingdom. We live a life not heeding His commands. And then we wonder, why do I have all of these things in my life? Well, let's look at this part, two treasures of the heart, verses 19 to 21. He's talking about material things. And material wealth uh, is important. It's not unimportant. In a lot of ways, you know, it's, it's how we survive. It's how we have food. It's how we have a shelter over our heads. It's how we stay cold in the winter and, or I'm sorry, warm in the winter and cold in the summer. But material wealth isn't everything. It isn't everything. And I think if we, ask, if we ask each other point blank, hey, are you hoping in money to save you? We would, we would probably say, no. Because if you've been around the church at all, if you've heard the Bible for any length of time, then you know the right answer to that. The right answer to that is no. Money won't save me. But I think if we evaluated our mindset about money, about possessions, if we evaluated what we buy, what our homes look like, what we spend our times on, the, that's the answer to the question. That it's important, it's not everything. And in fact, when it's left unchecked, material wealth can become an all-controlling idol. We are living in a consumeristic culture. You know, Christmas is, just puts all of that on display. The Christmas sales start in what, July now? They put up Christmas decorations and then slide into Halloween and Thanksgiving and then it goes back to Christmas. Because we're so consumeristic. It's all about having more and more and more. And I mentioned uh, during one of my Christmas sermons about something called the Advent 
uh, conspiracy. Y'all remember that? And one of the things, one of the points of that is an intentional move to spend less. Because I don't know if y'all read, you know, I read about all kinds of stuff. But a, a study came out this Christmas that showed people routinely go into debt to buy Christmas presents. It's like, why? Because it's just so controlling that we need stuff. We need to be able to give presents because that's what people do at Christmas. Right? What's well, a very attractive cultural narrative that if we're not careful, we, we buy into it. But people can become so consumed, and I think by people, what I mean is we, we can become so consumed with material things that we are derailed from kingdom priorities. And so, along with that, there's a temptation, both modern but also ancient, to associate God's blessing in our life with material wealth. That if I have a lot of stuff, then God's blessing me. Versus if I don't have a lot of stuff, God's not blessing me. And maybe it's not material things. Maybe it's something else in your life. If I don't have X, Y, and Z, then I must be doing something wrong. God must be keeping something from me, and I, I need to change so that God will give me those. Because the people that have those, God's clearly blessing them because they have that stuff. But even in ancient Jewish writings, we find warnings against equivocating stuff with blessing. The ancient Jews said, hey, stuff's not bad. A lot of times stuff is good, but stuff's not everything. Be wary of overvaluing having stuff, whether it's material or whatever it is. And while wealth is not inherently evil, it can be acquired illegitimately. You all, if you all watch the news, you know people steal things. You know, and, and, and we, we are sinful people and we are tempted by sin. And so just because somebody is well off financially or materially doesn't mean that God's blessing them. They could have gotten that any number of ways. And in Jeremiah chapter 12, Jeremiah laments. He says, why does it seem like the pagans, why does it seem like the people that are oppressing us are doing so well? I know that you have had that same thought because you're like me and I have had that thought. I look at my life, I'm like, God, I'm doing okay. I'm trying to be a good, I'm trying to be a good Christian. I'm praying, I'm reading my Bible. I'm trying to sin less. But these other people over here, the folks that I went to high school with or whatever, they're living like pagans and they're making more money than me and they've got nicer stuff than me and they seem to be doing better than me. What's the deal? That's a natural temptation of our heart. And God's saying that will derail you from the kingdom. Just like thinking, I've got to get as much stuff as I can will derail you from the kingdom. The accumulation of wealth for its own sake is deceptive. Get more money to get more money to get more money or to get more stuff and stuff. That is not inherently wrong, but it is deceptive. Because money was never meant to be an end in and of itself. God created money as a tool. And once one can find in material treasure a false sense of security or an inaccurate assessment of one's own spiritual health. God's granted me with a good job that pays well. I've got a lot of stuff. Therefore, you know, I must be doing pretty good in God's eyes. Otherwise, he wouldn't give me this kind of stuff. And what Jesus is saying is, not only is that foolishness, 
But he's saying that will keep you from focusing on the kingdom. That will keep you from focusing on the kingdom. So, an example there. If I'm well off financially, God's blessing me and causing me to flourish. And one thing I think we struggle with, especially in our modern days, that Christians who live in affluent societies are often tempted to look down on Christians who live in less affluent societies. Third world type places. The temptation is to think that God has somehow blessed us and withheld from them. To think like, uh, think about Haiti, for instance, one of the uh, most poverty-stricken countries in the world. And there's so many things going wrong there. But while I have never been personally to Haiti, I know people who have gone over and over again. I know two people that live down there as missionaries. And I think what they would tell you is, that's some of the richest Christianity they've ever seen. And I've heard numerous mission teams come back from Haiti and give reports and say, I wish I believed in Jesus like they do. They don't have anything. But they have something with Jesus that I don't have. I think there's a temptation to think that because we, have, we are a, a materially wealthy society, that God has somehow given us something that he has withheld from them. And again, Jesus is saying that is a trap. Don't think like that. And don't think like that because it will keep you from having kingdom priorities. It will distract you from that. And so to this, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. When he says treasure, he's talking about whatever is valuable to you. It could be money. It could be material. It could be people. It could be uh, school. It could be work. It could be anything. And Jesus is saying, if all of your hopes, if all of your dreams are bound up in something that's on the earth, then it's bound to let you down at some point. You've heard the statement, one man's trash is another man's treasure. Sometimes we just treasure trash. Because I think if we're honest, trash is trash. And I think if we, if we take stock of some of the things that we value, some of the things that we give our time and our money and our attention to, we would have to be the first ones to say, I value some trash. And Jesus is saying, don't wonder why you're not pursuing the kingdom when we're so absorbed with this stuff. So he says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. I use these two examples to illustrate why we should not treasure earthly things. The first one is the moth. Which is, in the ancient world, was a commonly recognized destroyer of any and everything, especially clothes. My grandparents all had mothballs in their clothes. When, when clothes are oftentimes made out of wool, I mean, moths will eat wool. And they'll destroy things. And so Jesus is saying, why would you spend all this money on this clothing that a bug is just going to eat? Why would you spend all of your money investing in this, this immaculate wardrobe when it's just subject to being eaten by bugs that you can't control? And he talks about rust, which is just a general statement for something that consumes something else. Rust, in particular, destroys metal objects. But Jesus has something greater in mind, something that's destructive, whether it's going to destroy your crops or even things like our bodies. Our bodies break down. You know, I told you all a while back, 
a couple weeks ago uh, that I was doing a sugar detox. Made it through Christmas. Still going strong. And it's right to care for our bodies. But I can sugar detox until I die and I'm still going to die. I can be a health nut to the end of my life and I'm still going to die when God appoints that I die. That doesn't mean I shouldn't care for my body. But it does mean that all my hope shouldn't be in being healthy. And his point is that not only, Jesus' point is that not only is it sinful to treasure worldly things over God, it's of no use. It's of no use. Because the things that we treasure are ultimately going to come to an end. Somebody's going to take them. They're going to break. We're going to lose them. You get enough money in the bank to where you're comfortable, and then inevitably all the cars break. Or the AC goes out. Or like with us, we were on vacation. Or not, I wouldn't call it vacation. We were visiting folks for Christmas. <laughs> and the van broke, and so we're in Gastonia. and had it fixed, and the day after we get back, the van broke again. So they go back to the shop, and it's still making a noise. So, you know, it's just inevitable that the stuff we have is going to break. And so to trust in those kind of things, Jesus says, is just not only is it idolatry, not only is it detracting you from God, not only is it sinful, it's really just foolish. It's not going to get you anything. And so why treasure something that's prone to decay, even by things like bugs, is what he's saying. Earthly treasures are easily diminished and done away with. Sorry, that's the typo there, done away with. 2 Corinthians 4, one of my favorite texts, I quoted a lot. Paul says, Though my outer self wastes away, my inner self is being renewed day by day. If you really get to the nitty gritty of his language there in the Greek, what he's saying is, my body's actively rotting at the moment. We can all look at ourselves and, and notice, you know, there are, there are evidences that my body is not working as well as it could. You know, the prayer list is just evidence that our bodies are decaying. Somebody, I heard somebody say, as soon as you're born, you start dying, right? The clock's ticking. And so Paul's saying, even though my body is breaking down, even though I'm sick, even though I have all these infirmities, even though I'm unhealthy, or whatever the situation may be, even though that's true, even though my life is coming to an end, what's my most true self, my soul, that is not only not decaying, he says, if I'm in Christ, that's being actively renewed. And the way in which, this is why grammar is important, the Greek structure of that sentence means that being renewed is it's always and forever ongoing. That whereas my body is decaying in a temporary sense, because there'll come a time when I die, that my soul being eternal is always being filled and held forth, held firm by God. And so rather than collecting material goods and wealth, Jesus teaches that we are to store up treasures in heaven where things such as moths and rust can't destroy. So if you're like me, you ask the question, well, what, what is heavenly treasure? And I want to give you this list that's not exhaustive, and all of these things come right out of the Sermon on the Mount. Everything we've talked about. And they're in order. Heavenly treasure is fasting over holiness. Because when we fast, we are reminding ourselves that food is not our ultimate Savior, Christ is. Heavenly treasure is praying in a godly, God-honoring way. Because through praying in those ways, we become more like God. 
Heavenly treasure is giving to the needy in private. Heavenly treasure is loving our enemies. Even when they hate us, it's loving our enemies. It's leaving retaliation to God, which sometimes may not feel all that satisfying. That's why Paul tells us in Galatians, don't be deceived. God is not somehow mocked by these people. If somebody wrongs you and nothing happens to them, Paul says, don't be foolish and think that God doesn't know. And the terrifying thing, he says, is that God's going to have the final say with that person. Heavenly treasure is honoring oaths and having integrity. It means honoring marriage and sexuality. It means guarding our hearts against lust and adultery. It means hating anger and pursuing reconciliation. It means recognizing that the Bible is about Jesus. It means being a wholesome gospel presence in the world. Heavenly treasure means that I endure persecution and hardship with hope. Heavenly treasure means that I am making peace through the gospel in the world. To, to lay up for myself treasure in heaven means that I am being pure in heart before God. That I am being merciful just as God has been merciful to me. Laying up heavenly treasure means that I'm hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It means that I'm exhibiting the same meekness that I see in Jesus Christ. It means that I am mourning over my own sin and the sin that's present in the world, the sin that breaks people's bodies and causes them to be sick, the sin that derails people from pursuing the things of the kingdom, the sin that drives our culture and breaks it. Laying up Heavenly treasure means that I am being emptied of all that's natural within me and in its place I'm being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Which is why Paul says in Ephesians 5 verse 18, Be filled with the Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what heavenly treasure looks like. And finally, just from the sermon we can say, heavenly treasure is truly hearing and listening to Jesus as our source of authority. Now all of that I just extracted right from the sermon. It's not exhaustive. We can make a laundry list of heavenly treasures. And you know what? Whereas sometimes worldly treasures are elusive, whereas sometimes we don't have enough money to get some of the worldly treasures we want, this list of treasures and all the biblical treasures are free to you. Absolutely free. Do you know why? Because... God says to us in Romans 8, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us, how will He not also with Him give us all things? And Jesus is saying, don't be so thrown off. Don't don't wonder why you worry. Don't wonder why you have anxiety. Don't wonder why you're not seeking the kingdom when all of this is true. We're so distracted by the world, we can't possibly seek the things of God. So Jesus teaches that this is a contrast of values. If one values the world, one cannot value the kingdom of God, nor the things of the kingdom of God. If my heart is not set on God, I'm not going to want the things of God. That means if I'm talking to an unbeliever, I've got to understand that we're not talking the same language. And that when I'm in my home, I need to exhibit, I need to, to lay out plain that this is a kingdom of, this home is oriented towards the kingdom of God. Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Which is why I mean coming back to Mark. It's important to hear what Jesus says. It's important to hear what Jesus says. If Jesus' disciples are fully focused on uh, the Father in heaven, on the kingdom of heaven, all other treasures will pale in comparison. If we truly get a glimpse of all God's glory and all that God is doing in the world, if we get a glimpse of how rich the treasures are in Jesus Christ, there's nothing that's going to really be able to distract us from that. There are going to be bumps along the way. We're still struggling with sin, but there will be nothing that can even compare. That's why Paul says, we see now through a glass darkly, But then, when we go to be with Him, we will see Him face to face. And that's why He says in Romans 8, it's a glory not even worth comparing. So such a view of the kingdom and of the world is the course. having, Having such a view of the kingdom of God is the course through which healthy discipleship comes. So I want to ask you a question. I don't want you to answer out loud. I don't want you to answer in your own heart. Do you want to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ? If your answer is yes, then what Jesus is saying is this is how you walk the path. This is the path. Pursuit of the kingdom. Not pursuit of the kingdom in the world. This is the path. It deals with our priorities, our motives. It deals with our righteous deeds. It deals with our ambitions, our securities, our personal self-worth. And it deals with our relationships. God speaks into every single category of our lives. And He leaves no stone unturned. Any questions before I go on? So he says, you, you've got a choice between the two treasures. He said, you can treasure the kingdom, or you can treasure the world. But understand, you can't do both. And the one will take you from the other. Well, then he goes on in verses 22 and 23. And he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if it's bad, the body is full of darkness. These verses are connected both with the preceding section on wealth and the following section. And it's necessary to see this connection to understand what Jesus is saying. So it'll, it'll come more fully as we look at verse 24 in just a few moments. But the disciple must make a choice between competing treasures. There's, you are not in a category to where you might be competing between treasures or you might not be. Jesus doesn't leave that open. He says, it's just true of you. The world... The world tempts us that way. And it's a competition that we face every single day. Our salvation is not on the line. If we are in Christ, we are in Christ because He saves us. And He says in John 10, no one can take us out of His hand. So it's not a matter of maintaining our salvation. It's a matter of maintaining our joy in Him. Of fighting to keep our joy in Him. But it's also a warning to the non-believer. Say, if, if you are so consumed with the things of the world, if all of your anxieties and all of your hopes and all of your ambition and all that is wrapped up in the world, and you're trying to find where Jesus fits in there, he's saying you may want to reevaluate. That's not how it works. We don't fit Jesus into our lives. Jesus comes in and says, follow me. Submit it all. 
So Jesus says the eye is the, the conduit or the, the tunnel, if you will, to the inner person. And so what we set our eyes on is that which we set our hearts on. And the eye, he's not just talking about what we see visually. He's talking about what we focus on, what we focus our lives on, what we spend our time on, what we spend our resources on. In old Jewish literature, there was a connection between the eye and the heart. That what I choose to look at, what I choose to focus on, is what my heart desires. And since in the heart is where we treasure things, what Jesus is saying is that which we focus on, we focus on something of value, that's what our heart is focused on. What we focus ourselves on is what's most precious to us. And so he says, evaluate yourself. If your eyes are focused on good things, if your eyes are focused on godly things, he says your whole body will be full of light or your whole being, your life will be filled with the light of the gospel. We are setting our, Paul says in in, in, uh, Colossians 3 this way, he says, set your mind on the things above where Christ is. Essentially what Jesus is saying, set your vision, set your focus on the things where Christ is. And if you do that, if we do that, our whole being will be filled with the light and the glory of God that comes through the gospel. But on the contrary, if we are setting our focus on things that aren't God, if we are focusing on worldly things, on sinful things, on things that are less than the kingdom, Jesus is saying, you're full of darkness. And that's why he uses that strange statement. If then the light in you is darkness, how great the darkness. What he's saying is, we can be so easily deceived thinking we're pursuing great things, and yet what we're pursuing is wrong stuff. And so we've become so deceived that we think we're pursuing good stuff when we aren't. Which is why if you come this Sunday to... Our Sunday service, you'll hear me preach out of Mark 4 where Jesus says, a very terrifying thing again, he says, to those who have, more will be given. But to those who do not have, even what they think they have will be taken away. And so what he's saying is some of you think that you are focused on good things. Like some of us tend to think that if I am wealthy and well off, God is blessing me. And what he's saying is that's darkness, even though you think it's light. And because you think it's light, it is even worse darkness. Because you don't know it's darkness. There are people who know what they're doing is wrong, and yet they choose to do it anyway. And then there are other people who are doing wrong things that they don't even know Because they can't see, they can't hear. And he says, that is a great darkness. So when we focus on godly things, we are naturally turned toward godliness. But when we focus on evil things, evil flows into our hearts. When I say evil, I mean, don't don't just think about like, you know, those folks. We all have that category of really bad people. Have in your mind the categories that Jesus has said. Let Jesus inform those things. Well, the last thing he confronts us with is a choice of two masters. Two treasures, two eyes, two masters. He says in verse 24, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
You cannot serve both God and money. And so the two treasures in verses 19 through 21 and the two eyes in verses 22 and 23 prepare us for this climax where Jesus says, all right, now choose. Make your choice. No one can serve two masters, he said. The word master means lowercase l, Lord. It could mean like an employer or a landlord or somebody who has some kind of charge over you. And that's not the emphasis. The emphasis is on the word serve, which really is the word slave. You cannot be owned by two things is what he's saying. In the New Testament, there's a Greek word called doulos. And what it means is bond, servant, or slave. And Paul says, I long to be, the, or he's, he, he says in one of his introductions of his letters, Paul a bond servant, or Paul a slave of Jesus Christ. And what he means is, I'm owned by Christ. And so, what Jesus is saying is, we cannot be owned by two things. We cannot divide our ownership. That I'm going to be partly owned by God, and partly owned by the world. Although a lot of us try to have that kind of division in our lives. We try to keep one foot on each side of the fence. I'll have Jesus when it's convenient, when something's going wrong, when I want to feel good, when I want to have hope. But when things are going well and I don't really need Jesus, I really want to enjoy the things of the world. And what he's saying is, no, you can't do that. You can't be owned by two, so make your choice. One might be able to work for two employers, but a slave is the sole property of his master. And Jesus is saying, this is not an employer-employee thing with salvation, where I'll, I'll come to work for Jesus and then I, may, I may choose something else that's better. Loyalty to one's master is no small issue. And as a matter of fact, it's an extreme issue. And Jesus is highlighting what is most natural, that if we attempt both, we will love one and hate the other. If I'm trying to keep a foot inside of, Je- inside of the Jesus fence and on this side of the world fence, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have both feet in the world and I'm just going to be thinking I've got a foot over here. Or I'll be remembering at one point I had a foot over here and trusting that I was religious at one point. See, the biblical idea of love and hate is not so much how I feel in any given moment, but on how I live. The pattern that I'm laying down with my life. Am I, am I laying down a pattern of godliness? Is there a pattern of that I am pursuing the things of God, that I am treasuring the kingdom of God? Or does my life say that there is a pattern of pursuing the world? And so, having been confronted, has prepared us to hear Jesus' summons, which is an unconditional surrender to Him. There's two treasures, there's two eyes, there's two masters. And he says, I will not share. This means that we must hate and reject anything that hinders attachment to Jesus. That we must hate and reject anything that would keep us from soul commitment to him. That means that we must hate and reject anything that would detract us from the kingdom of God. Which is why in Matthew 10, Jesus says, He who does not hate his father and mother, brother and sister cannot be my disciple. That's why he says, I've come to turn father against son and mother against daughter. Now he didn't mean literally he came to make families hate each other. But his point 
this, that there are going to be some of you that come to faith and are so radically changed that you can't, ha- you can't share a family relationship anymore because you don't think the same anymore. Nowhere is this more evident in our modern world than in the Muslim world. When a Muslim comes to faith, they oftentimes have to flee because a lot of times their families will kill them. And the point Jesus is making is that our loyalties, our priorities, everything about us changes when we come to faith and we become His completely. So these metaphors, treasure, light, master, they culminate in what Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and money. You can't serve God and the world. You can't have a foot in both. There can be no divided loyalties with God. Pastor said, loving God is not merely a matter of emotions, but of serving and giving oneself to Him completely, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so He's going to say, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. You know who hears that and receives it? The one who hears that and receives it is the one who is treasuring Christ over the world. The one who is setting their focus on Christ and not on the things of the world. The one who is not being owned by the world, but who is being owned by God. So when our, when our whole being is oriented toward God, anxiety becomes understandable. It doesn't necessarily go away, but we begin to understand that even though I'm feeling anxious, even though things are stressing me out, I can see beyond them because my hope is set on Christ. Because I recognize that I can see beyond the grave and know that I'll go to be with Christ in the end and that there is nothing that the world, nothing in this world that can happen to me that can take that away. There is nothing this world can give me that can compete with the joy that comes through Jesus Christ. And so it's no surprise. It should be no surprise to us, and now that you've heard it, no surprise to you, that if you are trying to find joy in the world, you will have trouble finding joy in God. If you are trying to find truth and guidance in the world, you will struggle finding those things from God's Word. If you are trying to find something in the world, you will struggle to find it from God because God says those two things are totally incompatible. And so if we are going to be encouraged by that phrase, which we'll talk about next week, do not be anxious, the encouragement comes from all the fullness that God gives us in Himself. But it won't be ours until we recognize that that's not in the world. Any thoughts or questions before I pray? Yes, sir.
Absolutely. I'll do that. Any other thoughts or before I close? So let me say this too. Um, if this has landed heavy on you, then don't keep it to yourself. <laughs> you don't have to share it with me. But find a brother or sister in Christ that you trust who you can flesh this stuff out with because this is not something that a quick conversation will fix. This is a lifestyle kind of thing. This is why God gives us the church, so that we can work this kind of stuff out together, ongoing forever. This is not stuff that we grow out of. It's stuff that we really grow into. But let me pray. God, I pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That we might see wondrous things in your word. That we might see that there's nothing in this world that's worth our affection. There's nothing in this world that's worth setting our hope on. God, help us to hear the truth of your word and to set our focus, to set our lives on you. Help us to, God, give us a passion and a drive to fight for our joy in you and in nowhere else, no one else. Lord, it's so tempting to trust in money. It's so tempting to trust in things. It's so tempting to trust in the world. And so, God, I pray that you would guard us from that. God, help us to be Bible people so that we might be kingdom people. Lord, we do pray for our world that's lost, that's in darkness. We do pray, Lord, we are in a a tenuous time with things going on in the Middle East, and we pray for the troops that are preparing and are already on their way and there. We pray for safety. Pray for our political leaders that are making decisions that affect the the, the relationship of countries and the lives of, of men and women, both who are going, Lord, and the families that are left behind. Lord, I pray that you would, you would uh, use that as a fruitful time for gospel ministry among the bases and among the troops as they go. Thank you for the chaplains that give their lives to minister to those troops. I pray that this is fruitful time that the gospel would ring out. Lord, as we depart, I pray that you not let these things pass lightly from our hearts and our minds, but you keep them before us. We are thankful for time to open your word together. We know that it is not wasted time. So Lord, with full hearts, we pray these things in your name. Amen.